0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 23. And it is our privilege to open God's Word once again and talk about the last few days of Jesus' life. Now, throughout our study, I have remarked about the differences of the common opinions about Jesus and what the Scriptures actually say about him. The other day, I was watching a promo for a church in Florida, and uh, they had a video where they showed a man who was playing the part of Jesus and he had the typical long stringy hair and the flowing robes and all of that. And in this particular video, they showed him baptizing someone. And I suppose that in their vast knowledge of the scriptures, they had actually missed the part where it says that Jesus never baptized anyone. And you might think, well, that's nitpicking to bring up something like that. But it is indicative of the ignorance that there is about Jesus, about who this Jesus is that we read about in the Bible, because people have their Jesus. They've made up a Jesus like they want him to be, and he rarely resembles what the scriptures actually have to say about him. And I think that it would be fair to say that there is none of you here today who has ever seen a, a movie or a passion play that shows Matthew chapter 23 and the way that Jesus spoke to the people on this particular day. Jesus was not an effeminate person. And he was never afraid to, nor unwilling, to confront hypocrisy and to make a stand against it. Now I think it's interesting that in the last public words that Jesus said to the people, that he chose to expose their religious leaders. And to condemn them for their false piety and this unabashed hypocrisy and leading people away from the truth and in the course of studying for this this message uh, i digested a lot of material that would help me to get a sense of the passage that i would be able to speak to you and the last public words of jesus were not sweet they weren't sugar-coated he pronounced judgment he pronounced wrath The wrath of God upon people that would dare lead others astray by preaching something that isn't true. And the wrath of God and the judgment of God, incidentally, will be more than just words when people stand before him in judgment. But in the course of studying for all of this, I digested all these different kinds of materials. And after reading the scriptures and reading a lot of commentary about them, what I discovered is that there are a lot of preachers, a lot of commentators, a lot of people who are willing to talk about what Jesus said here and willing to state truths that are in the passage, but mostly unwilling to put those very same things into a modern context. Because to do so is to put on a negative front. It's, it's to expose religious charlatans who most people, or many people, have a great deal of confidence in. And, and that is actually what Jesus was up against when he assaulted the authority of these people, these religious leaders that others thought were really the paragons of truth and virtue. Now can you imagine what it would be like if someone were to come into Berean Baptist Church today and they stood up against me and they said that they had this scathing diatribe against what I teach and what the Berean Baptist Church believes? Now hopefully you would have confidence in me that that the charges that people would make against us are not true charges, and we are actually teaching God's word in truth, and I hope that you would be offended if someone were to come in here and say that we're not teaching the truth. I hope that you would stand by me, and I think that you would. Well, in this case, when Jesus confronted the religious leaders, everything that he said, all of the negative things that he said were true. But the people had depended upon them for so long and they had been duped for so long that they didn't know the difference between truth and lies. To them, their leaders were the best of the best. They were authoritative. They thought that they spoke for God. And there are many people today that suffer from the same delusion. They think that their church and their pastor or their favorite TV preacher is absolutely right. And they're offended when you take the word of God and you show them that they're not. And so I wonder what good does it do for us to know that Jesus taught about hypocritical Pharisees 2,000 years ago. What good does that do us unless we can actually put it into a modern context today and see that Jesus is warning us about the very same thing? I I wonder about this and, and people often get upset when I mention the names of some religious leaders and I tell you, you ought to stop listening to them and that they're not telling the truth. Stop listening to the garbage that they spew. And so I can't think of any other reason that the Holy Spirit would inspire a man like Matthew to record these words other than this, that God wants us to be on the lookout for the same types of teachers. And he wants us to oppose them and he wants us to expose them and tell people they are not speaking the truth. And no matter how sincere that people are about what they believe, it's only the truth that will save them. And so we look at this text and we wonder, does it really matter what you believe? Does it really matter who you follow? Is a fake thing as good as the real thing? And if you wonder about that, you might ask an art dealer, who's been fooled by a fake Rembrandt, ask him if the fake is as good as the real. Well, we know that it's not. And here we're talking about something far more serious than a fake painting. We're talking about a person's soul. Souls hang in the balance here. It's either heaven or hell, and that's the difference between truth and a lie. And God loves your soul enough, and I love your soul enough, to tell you that you shouldn't have confidence in false teachers. And so I don't have any reservations in mentioning names. Joel Osteen or John Hagee or Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn and a host of other ones. I mean, I have my whole list. And there, you know, I've just mentioned the unmentionable. But I don't have any shame in doing that. We're going to read here what Jesus said in the beginning of the chapter. And these are very strong words. But they're actually just the warm-up act for what comes later when he escalates the heat On these false teachers. Now, if you'll stand with me, please, as we look at God's Word, we're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew 23, and we're not going to get very far, I'll tell you that right now. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All, therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do, for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at the feast, and the chief seats in the synagogues, And greetings in the market, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, And he he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to say the right things today. Say them in love, but also, Lord, speak absolute truth. That's what we want to do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 23 in Matthew is the last public statement that Jesus made to the crowds. Uh, the teachings that follow this, once we get beyond chapter 23, was Jesus speaking to his disciples. And so in this place, Jesus chose uh, to preach his last words, say his last words to the people. And this involved telling them about their religious leaders. Now the place where Jesus chose to do this was the temple. He'd not, left, not yet left there. And so within earshot of these very things that Jesus said were these leaders that he was denouncing. Now, as you know, Jesus confronted the Pharisees on many occasions, and as he prepared for his crucifixion, he used this time uh, to take a parting shot at them, cleansing the temple and defying religious convention and speaking the words as he does here in this chapter. This was all in the part of the plan to escalate the hatred against him and help to turn the adoring crowds into angered crowds that by the end of the week they would crucify him. Now before we get started into the text, there's some more things that you need to know about the Pharisees. I know that you're aware that the Pharisees were a religious party in Israel. You know that they opposed Jesus, and you know that they were very strict about keeping the laws of Moses. But you might not know where they came from. And you might not really understand why people would choose to listen to them When they had gone so far away from the word of God. Now they were a religious party of long standing. And they actually had their roots back in the time in the Old Testament. uh, In Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, This was the time when Israel had returned from the captivity in Babylon. And there weren't any Pharisees then. But there was the makings for them at that time. Now you remember that when the children of Israel returned from the captivity. That Ezra who was a priest and a scribe, and Nehemiah, who was the governor of the people, they, they reacquainted the people with God's law. See, God's law had been neglected prior to the captivity, and that's one of the reasons that Israel went into the captivity, and they neglected it all through that time. And so when they got back into the land, Nehemiah and, uh, and Ezra began to reacquaint them with God's law. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra stood upon a pulpit of wood and he began to read from the law. And when he opened the book, all of the people stood to their feet. Let me read this to you from Nehemiah chapter 8. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now Ezra read from the law for about five or six hours. And all that time the people stood up as he read. And then they stood as he explained what he had just read. Now I don't ask you to stand for the entire time that I read a message or preach a message. But I do ask you to stand for this part when we read the word of God. And Nehemiah is actually the place where we take our cue. Now folks, reading from God's law, from God's word, is a very good thing. We ought to respect God's word. That is a good thing. That is a holy and a righteous thing. Because when we read from the word of God, we're actually listening to God speak to us. We don't hear from God in other ways today. Because he's already said everything that he wanted to say. Now at first, the Bible says that he spoke to the prophets. And then it says in the last days that he spoke through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And we have the words that God spoke through the prophets and through Christ. And that means prophets, Old and New Testament. He he spoke through them. And these words are recorded in the pages of the Holy Scripture. And the Bible that we have today that we're reading from right here is sufficient for all that we need to know about God and to know about our lives in relationship to God. And so this was a very, very good thing to read from the law when Ezra read from the law. Reverence for God's word is a righteous thing. And so I would tell you this, when we're reading from God's word, never leave the auditorium when we're doing that. If you have to go, pick another time to go. Because when we read God's word, that is God speaking to us. So don't let your mind wander off when we're reading the Bible. And don't turn around and talk to someone else when we're reading from the Bible. Because that is God speaking to us. And let me just stop right there for just a minute too. Never choose for your church or for your pastor a church or a pastor that neglects the reading of God's word. Never choose that kind of church. Never choose someone who doesn't have enough respect for the word of God to read from it and preach from it as the very thing that God wants you to know. Now, it's the word that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit uses to convict and to strengthen us and to sanctify us. So mark off from your list anyone, any church that neglects God's word. And that's why we ask you to bring a Bible when you come to Berean. You need a Bible when you come here, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to read from God's Word. And so that was the mindset of the people in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were shown the Word of God, and they were refreshed by the Word of God, because they were reminded of all the wonderful promises that God had given them. All the wonderful truths that are in God's Word, that they were God's people, and God loved them with an everlasting love. And it was out of that mindset for the love of the law for God's word that they actually became students of God's word and they wanted more of it. And they wanted more of it. And so over the years, they, they were so enamored with God's word that they ate, they drank, and they slept it. Now folks, that's a good thing as well. Unless, unless you get mixed up and you begin to think that keeping the law is the way that God saves us. Now the law was never intended to save anyone. The law was given to show us how badly that we need the grace of God. How badly that we have sinned against the holy God. But the grace part in that was neglected. And it was out of love for the law and confusion about the law and what it was actually for that this religious party called the Pharisees were born. And that was in the time... Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 200 years before Christ came. Pharisee means separate, and these were a separated group of people thinking that they were above the common Jews because they kept God's law, and that's what made them holier than others. And this separated group was not a huge group. At the time of Jesus, there were only about 6,000 of these Pharisees. And, um, They commanded the respect of the people, though, and they were more popular with the people because they were more personable than other religious groups. For instance, the Sadducees, who were a much, much smaller group, were the aristocracy, and they weren't so much in touch with the common man. But the Pharisees were different from that. They were more likable than these other religious groups because they were more common, and so they became more popular. And you do need to understand that Israel was a religious society, not a secular one. And so they gravitated they gravitated towards the religious because this is a society that's built entirely upon this, their belief in Jehovah God. And almost all the conflicts that Israel had were with, with anybody were religious conflicts. Now, as we learned a few weeks ago, the Pharisees rejected Rome because they believed that there was no one but God who had the right to rule over them. And they rejected the Roman taxes, because to pay the tax was to say that they were bowing to Rome. And to them that was idolatry, because Caesar claimed to be God. So it wasn't just a matter of being resistant to secular authority, but this was a highly religious matter, that everything they did was filtered through this lens of their religion. And that's the way that it is in the, in the Middle East today. And, and, I, and I want to make this comment that I know it's not, not politically correct, but the Middle East is still filled with that mindset. Uh, with the exception of Israel, the governments of the Middle East, as you know, are Muslim. And we are fooling ourselves if we think that fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else over there is not a religious war. Because everything that they do is filtered through their religion. And like it or not, folks, we are at war with Islam. And that's true no matter how you slice it. And we're going to continue to be at war with Islam until they do in America what they've done in the European countries and in the Eastern Bloc, where we've lost nearly all of our allies in Western Europe over Middle Eastern policy. And that's because the Muslims have so much infiltrated those parts of Europe. And so our war with Islam is not going to be over until America is predominantly Muslim instead of Christian. And so you need to remember that when there's a mosque or a minaret built near you. Now, as you know, I don't preach politics. And what I've said here is not a political statement. This is a biblical statement because Satan is ever at war with God's people. And we're fooling ourselves if we don't look at all the implications of that war. And this world is headed for one big religious war. And that's at the end, and Satan and everybody who follows him will be defeated in that war in the battle of Armageddon. Now, you'll excuse all the extra information, but I think these kinds of things are important, and that's why it takes more than one week to preach the message. And so we need to lay this kind of groundwork so we can bring all of this into a modern context so we can understand it better. So going back to the Pharisees, the society in Israel was religious, and we can expect that because Israel was God's chosen nation. And so God was always going to be major in everything that went on there. So the Pharisees loved the law, and if Ten Commandments were good, then they thought that 600 might be better. They were big into rites and into rituals and they kept adding to the mosaic law and they thought that a person's spirituality was actually grounded in all of these extra laws and so they were continually pushing strict compliance to those laws and then there's something else that you need to know about the pharisees and that is that not all of them were bad people Uh, and i know that we usually cast them in a very bad light but not all of them were hypocrites Some of them were genuinely looking for truth. And some of them did want to serve God out of a heart of love. Paul was that kind of Pharisee. Uh, He said that he was very zealous towards God's law. And when he persecuted Christians, he actually did think that he was doing what God wanted him to do. And he said, I did that ignorantly and in unbelief. He really thought that he was serving God. And Nicodemus was a good Pharisee. He listened to Jesus and he wanted truth. And that's why he came to Jesus in John chapter 3 in the night. And he asked Jesus about the way of eternal life. And in that wonderful passage there in in John 3, Jesus explained to him that he must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And folks, Jesus was teaching him grace. That regeneration of the heart, that is an act of God. That's not something that man can do. And then there was Joseph of Arimathea. He's the one who begged from Pilate the body of Jesus after he was crucified. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took that body and they cleaned all the blood off of it and they wrapped it in linen cloths and they and they anointed it with over a hundred pounds of very precious spices. And then Joseph put the body of Jesus into his own tomb that he had bought for his own burial. So those men were Pharisees. Not all of them were bad, but most of them were. And there's a lot more that I could tell you, and we will say more as we go through the 23rd chapter. So these are the men that conspired against Jesus. They were always plotting and scheming. They were always following him around, looking for some angle, uh, some crack in the armor where they could get in and discredit him. These are the men in chapter 22 that were behind some of those questions that they asked Jesus in attempts to trap him. And these are the ones that are in chapter 21 that Jesus spoke against them in parables. They claimed that they were on the side of the prophets, but Jesus said, you are the children of the ones who killed the prophets. And they claimed that they were the children of Abraham, but these are the same ones that Jesus said, no, you're not. You're not the children of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. And so some were good, but most of them were bad. And in this text, Jesus went after them because they were fakes, they were false, they were unrighteous pretenders. And so as we look at this text, what I propose to do in this message and in two messages after this is that I want to show you the difference between false teachers and true ones. What you believe and who you follow is very important. And it was so important that the Apostle Paul said that he spent night and day warning people about false teachers. In Acts 20, uh, this is when he met with the Ephesian elders for the last time. He said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so do you know what else is righteous? It is righteous to have respect for the word of God, but it is also righteous to expose anyone who is opposed to the word of God. It is a righteous thing to expose people who take this very same Bible that we use and they twist the truth and they obfuscate the truth and they mock truth and then they turn around and say that they're telling the truth and so we're going to expose them because God wants us to shut the mouths of those like Osteen and Hagee and Hen and Copeland and maybe even some of those right here in Roanoke Park that are religious pretenders. And so this means that we have to spend some time on the negative side, just as Jesus spent time on the negative side. And so after that lengthy introduction, our first observation today is the marks of a false teacher, the marks of a false teacher. I wish that you could stick with me for a few hours and and we could get much further along, but I know you can't do that, so we're just going to get a start into the text today. What do false teachers do that identify them as being untrue and to be avoided? Now what we read about here in the scriptures is relevant to the modern problem. When just about anybody can hang out a shingle and say, Well, I've started a church. You need to be able to sift through those and tell who is telling the truth. And it's common among Christians today... That because of Christian love and brotherhood, that we don't say anything about anybody no matter how aberrant their doctrine is. But I want to tell you something, folks. That's not Christian love. And that is not brotherhood. I am not the brother of anyone who teaches a lie to people. I'm not their brother. I'm just what Jesus said. I'm a, father, a child of the Father in heaven, and they are children of the devil. And see John 8.44 for what Jesus said about that. Now we look here then in the first verse and the second verse, and it says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So Jesus is here at the temple, and he began to expose false teachers, and the first thing that he said about them, the first thing that you need to know is that they do not speak for God. They claim that they speak for God, but they don't speak for God. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was getting ready for church and uh, on Sunday morning, and I was getting my Sunday morning entertainment, and uh, I was listening to religious programming, and that pretty much is what that is to me, a comedy act. For most of the religious programming. And I was listening to one of the popular TV preachers as he was preaching. And he got ready to draw his next point, And he said, last night God told me this. And then he went a little bit further and he said, last night God told me this. And then he said, you're not going to be able to read this in the Bible. You're not going to find it there because God told me this. God told me this. He's given me the secret of this text. Now, of course, if God told you something and you repeated what God said, you would be speaking for God. I mean, a false teacher is never going to say, well, last night I was very deeply in prayer and Satan appeared to me and he told me that I needed to tell you this. No, a false teacher is not going to tell you that Satan told him anything, but he's forever saying that God told me this. He's always saying, God told me to say this. And he says, I speak for God. And why would he say that? Well, he claims to speak for God because that's where the authority is. Satan has no authority over a Christian, so he's not going to say Satan told him anything. And so this same false teacher who knows that God did not speak to him will tell you that he speaks for God because he wants you to listen. God is the authority, and so he says, I speak for God. Now, if you hear a preacher say, God spoke to me last night, the very first thing that you should do is to get real defensive about it. And the second thing you need to do is turn around and head the other direction because you are about to be told a lie. You see, false prophets love to claim new revelation. And they love to claim that because new revelation is subjective. I mean, who's to say that God didn't speak to them? And who's to say that what they're telling you is not what God said? Who's to say that what they say is not true? You see, New Revelation doesn't have an objective standard. There's no way that you can judge it. And that's the reason that we go to the unchangeable, infallible Word of God. And we go that to that alone because the Word is objective. We know that this is what God said. We know that this is God's Word. It's written down in black and white. These are words that have been spoken by God. And so how did the Pharisees stake their claim to be God's authority? Well, Jesus answers that here. He says they sit in Moses' seat. And that's the same as saying they're speaking in the place of authority. Now, in the synagogues, there was a stone bench that sat up in the front of the synagogue that was elevated above the rest of the people. And that's where the rabbi for the day would go and he would read from god's word from the scriptures that's the same place that jesus sat when he was invited to speak at the synagogue in nazareth and he stood up to read god's word and began to preach and they weren't too happy about what he said and so they drove him out of the synagogue and they tried to kill him now sitting in moses seat is just a euphemism for saying that they pretended to have authority the Mosaic law is authoritative, and they were the teachers of the law. Jesus said, the scribes sit in Moses' seat. Now, the scribes are the law experts. They're, they're the experts in the theology of the law and the application of it. All of the scribes were Pharisees, but not all of the Pharisees were scribes. The scribes are the elite Among them, The scribes are the most knowledgeable, the most studious among them. And they knew all about all these different laws that they had added on top of the Mosaic law. And there, folks, we have another great tip-off for a false teacher. That when a man starts to add to what God said, and when he begins to speak doctrines that are not in the scriptures, he doesn't have authority. He doesn't speak for God. And there was a problem then. And there's a problem now in preachers that want to add to the word of God. That's one of the problems that we have with the charismatic movement today. And, and why you have problems with TV preachers that claim that God speaks to them. They're always saying they have a new revelation. But there's no need for new revelation. We have the completed word of God and the word of God is all that we need. Other places in scripture that warn about taking away or adding to God's word. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, it says, "...what things soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it." And then in Revelation 22, it says, "...for I testify unto every man that hear the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book." And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now that tells us it is a very serious offense to alter the word of God. Now why don't we need new revelation? Why don't we need anything but God's word? Well, Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. He said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works." God inspired scripture. That means he breathed the scriptures and it says that they're good for doctrine, they're good for our correction, they're good for instruction in righteousness and then it says this word of God perfectly furnishes you for all good works. So if God has given us that which makes us perfect, then why do we need anything else? An addition to the word of God would mean that it's not complete. But it's actually lacking something that would make us perfect. And so I don't tell you that God spoke to me last night because he didn't need to. If he spoke to me, then he would speak in the same way that he speaks to you. And that is when we read God's word, that is God speaking to us. And that's all that God has to say. And that's why we say that the word of God is plenarily inspired. And that's a word that means that it's full and complete. That the word of God lacks nothing. And so whenever you hear a self-proclaimed prophet say that God spoke to them, and they're going to give you a prophecy that's been revealed especially to them, then you know that you have found a false teacher. You see, God's word is forever settled in heaven. When there were prophets... They had to be 100% correct, 100% of the time. And there is no such thing as a prophet like that today. And so if God were to speak today, you know what he would say? He'd say, I'm not speaking to you. Because my word speaks to you. But he doesn't have to say that because he already said it right here. And that's brilliant logic. God speaks to us through his word. Now notice again that Jesus says that they sit in Moses' seat. And that word seat is an interesting word. It's the word cathedra. Same word from which we get cathedral. Now the Roman Catholics have a saying. They say that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that he's infallible. Ex cathedra means from the chair. In other words, the Pope is authoritative when he sits in that chair where there is authority. Now, God, of course, says, I I don't know who that guy in the funny hat is. He doesn't speak for me. But because these Roman Catholics add all their traditions and all of the rituals that they have, we know that they're not speaking for God. Well, the Pharisees spoke ex cathedra. They spoke from the seat, from the place of authority. But what they had done was to add to what God said. God had given Moses ten commandments, and the Pharisees that claimed authority had 613 more that they added to the law. Now listen to something else that Jesus adds to this. He says in verse 3, All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. And so when the scribes actually read from God's word, what were the people to do? Well, they were to obey the laws. When the the scribes actually read God's word, they were to obey the parts that were God's words. it's just like in the Old Testament. When a donkey speaks, you listen to him if he's speaking the words of God. Now, I I know that we think of bad Pharisees as being terribly immoral people. But they weren't immoral people. These were people who really did respect the Word of God. They were trying to live by the Word of God. Now, they'd added a whole lot of extra things, but they were never going to take the actual words of God and trash God's Word. They were not going to do that. They, they, were, immor- they were very moral people, and when, the, when they spoke from God's Word, the people should have obeyed God's law. And you know there are a lot of Christians today that want to make such a distinction between law and grace that what they want to do is throw the law out. Uh, Those of you that have been Christians for a while, I, I know that you've heard the song that says, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. It was grace that rescued me. It was grace that set me free. And you may remember that old song that says, free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has died and there is remission. And those songs are true. They are true as far as the law condemning us. We're not under the law, we're under grace because Jesus has taken the penalty of our sins. It's the grace of God that covers us. And the law can't condemn us. It can't touch us because the blood of Christ covers up the law and it hides it from us. And I wish that, that, that I could preach that part of it today and say more about it because that point is beautifully illustrated in the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that ark were the tables of the law, the stone tablets that God gave to Moses. And they put them inside of the ark, and over the ark there was a lid, and that lid was the mercy seat, and that's where the priest would come, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement. And that was to show that the law was hidden in the blood of Christ, under the blood of Christ, and it was out of view of God. And so we're not condemned, we're not under the law, but we are under grace. But that doesn't mean that the law means nothing to us. God's word demands obedience. God demands obedience. And Jesus obeying the law shows us that. He, he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, he said. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, what do you think those commandments are? Jesus is God, and so the commandments that God gave are Jesus' commandments. And he says, keep them. And so whenever you hear the word of God that's spoken in truth, when someone's reading the scriptures, then obey that because that is God speaking. And then Jesus adds further instruction. He says, observe those things, do those things that God actually said. And then he says, don't do as they do. They say, but they don't do. And we don't have time to get into that one today. That's about hypocrisy. And that's another mark of a false teacher. You see, it's no excuse for you not to do the right thing because somebody else does the wrong thing. You know, that's a big problem in churches, that people want to excuse their sin because somebody else is doing something worse than what I do, then it's all right for me to do what I do. But it's not alright to do that. Even if you don't think the church is properly taking care of some sin that someone else has committed and it's worse than what you do, you don't have an excuse to sin. You don't have an excuse because when you stand before God, you're not going to answer for anybody but you. And you're not going to say, but, 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 look what he did. Oh, God's not going to judge you for what he did. He's going to judge you for what you do. Well, that's, that's another subject, and we'll talk more about it next week, hopefully. So what do we learn today? Well, as usual, you've learned it. Pastor Smith can preach long messages. But more important than that, what I want you to take away from this message today, and this very first point that we've talked about, is the all-sufficiency of the Word of God. I want to impress upon you the all-sufficiency, that God has given us a perfect book. If you come on Wednesday nights, we talk about things like that in the Fundamentals of Faith class. We depend entirely upon the inerrant, inspired, infallible, plenary word of God. What God said is all that we need. And so when you go to a church, look for a pastor. Don't look for a place where they neglect the Bible and they don't preach from the Bible. And neither should you listen to anyone who says that I have another book, I have another revelation, and they say that that came from God. And don't go to a place where the preacher holds up the Bible and says, well, I have something different to say to you today. You're not going to find what I have to say in the Bible, but God spoke to me about this. Don't listen to that. He claims to speak for God, but he doesn't speak for God. And if you listen to him, you're going to go off and your soul is in danger of hell. It does make a difference who you listen to and what you believe. A false prophet will always say he speaks for God. Now, are these things that we really ought to be talking about today? I mean, should we, should we actually say something about this? Should we try to ferret out the false teachers and warn people about them? If I name names of someone who's a false teacher, is that the wrong thing to do? And should I be afraid of hurting your feelings? Well, no, your your feelings will survive and your feelings will recover, but your soul won't if you believe a lie. So I choose to tell it like Jesus told it. This is the way that the real Jesus taught. And we're just getting a very, very small taste of it here in these first 12 verses. When we get beyond this... Hold on to your seat because you're going to see a Jesus maybe that you never thought even existed. It's the real Jesus of the Bible. And this is the way that we choose to go. So if you don't like it, you better get used to it because we are determined to preach the way that Jesus preached. That's the perfect example for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that is in your word. And Lord, help us to really understand and regard this as the absolute truth of the way that you want us to live, what you want us to know, that we know that the word of God is God speaking to us. And Lord, may we ignore all things that come from men and all claims that are made from men who say they have another revelation from you that's not already in your word. You've given us the perfect word. It's full and complete and it's all that we ever need to know about how to live for you and how to be saved and how to go to heaven. Lord, help us to preach that truth. And then I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would today understand that your grace is the only thing that can save them by putting their faith in you and you alone, trusting nothing in themselves, nothing in laws and rituals and all of those things that the Pharisees tried to put on people, but simply trusting you alone as the all-sufficient Savior. Open someone's heart to that truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, sometimes when you preach messages like this, people think that you're really mean when you get on other, other religions, when you, get on, you mention somebody's name. And um, as we go through the next verses in this chapter, I'm probably going to sound a whole lot meaner, by some of the things that, when I repeat what Jesus said, and make an application to the modern church that needs to be made. But I want you to understand something very clearly, and I'll bring this point up later, is that Jesus did not speak any of this in anger. That Jesus didn't say these things because he hated their souls. And he wanted false prophets just to go to hell. He didn't speak that way. But let me read to you what it says Near the end of the chapter, after Jesus had spoke all of his scathing words, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus said these words with a broken heart. And we don't preach against false teachers and mention names because we hate them. But we want you to know the truth. And I have no other desire than that false teacher himself would hear the truth and believe and come to Jesus Christ. None of this is said in hatred. And we're not trying to set ourselves apart from anyone else who calls himself a Christian because we think that we're better than they are and we just don't like them. That is absolutely untrue. Our purpose is the same as Jesus' purpose. Give people the truth so they can be saved. And that's the sum total of it all. And you have to go on the negative side to do that. Because you can't bring out what's false without being negative, can you? You have to say it. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what we want to do. But today, I hope that if, as you listen to the message that that this would be your desire. Please, Pastor, tell us the truth. Tell us these things no matter if they hurt. Tell us these things no matter if they strike us to the heart and cause pain. No matter what it is, tell us the truth always. Because we need to know where we stand in front of a holy God. And that's all I want to do is tell you the truth. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church